I am uh, <clears throat> eternally grateful uh, for a music director, I would say a worship pastor, and uh, a choir that um, instrumentalists, every voice up there uh, with a focus on the Lord, not on us, but on the King that we worship. We need to be very grateful uh, for our choir, Brother David, and our instrumentalists and the time they put in and the wisdom used to select songs that honor the Lord. And I'm so blessed. Well, y'all see these right here? <laughs> I'm telling you, folks, for your benefit and mine, uh, some of you think, well, maybe you'll cut down the sermon from 35, 40 minutes down to 30 if you're able to see better. Now listen, they're progressives. I may flop off the stage. I'm trying to learn. I've been sitting in my office. But today with the magnitude of the amount of text I've got to read for you today, I'm putting these boogers on. And so you look great out there right now. And when I look down, man, it is magnified so beautifully. All right. Uh, let me begin this sermon by focusing your attention on 1 Timothy Chapter 1, 12 through 17. We're making a transitional shift in Acts that's going to carry us out to the end. And we may say that with Paul, uh, it's, it's the prisoner, Paul, in his progress. Because from here on out, he's going to be imprisoned and he's going to be fulfilling the direct mandate from Christ that was given to us in the book of Acts. Just listen to how he speaks to Timothy, his young protege in the faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I hope you are captivated by how Paul, from day one, once he was saved, he put his face like a flint toward the end of life and what God had called him to do. And Man, that, that emboldens me. Uh, he's going to say it to Timothy in 2 Timothy. As I've been a follower of Christ, you also do that. And so he had this one focus in life, knowing that Jesus had appointed him to service. And listen, though I formerly blasphemed, I was a persecutor. I was insolent. I was and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into, into the world of safe sinners. Isn't that a great statement? That's why he came. Now listen to Paul. Of which I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he gives us this magnificent uh, doxology to the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So Paul saw his life as an understanding of fulfillment of the call of God upon his life. Thus, the title, Suffering for the Advancement of the Gospel. And what you have is Paul's defense at Jerusalem. Now, would you explain your life as a life of suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Just think about that now. Everything that Paul endured, everything in his life was seen to be 
a fulfillment of all the suffering so that we might advance the gospel. Now folks, I know we live in a busy society. We all have jobs and we are inundated with the things of life, whether it be sports or entertainment or whatever that may be. But how often do we stop and focus and say, God, you saved me for a purpose. And that purpose ultimately is for the advancement of the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. Now sure, we think about heaven and man, that's going to be blissful. But folks, you're not dead yet. Your earthly body and life is not over. And I'm telling you folks, we, did, we live in a day of spiritual fatalism. What's that mean? Well, we look at other believers or we think about ourselves and we say, well, uh, there's an area I will never attain. Or there's a, a spiritual walk that I'm never going to have like other people have. So I'm just stuck where I am. And I'm just going to reserve the right to be who I am. But folks, that's not allowed as a believer. You're called by God to cultivate spiritual desires. You're called by God to desire the pure milk of the Word of God that in it you may grow. I'm telling you today, if you're a spiritual fatalist, you need to wake up to the reality that you need to desire the Word more. You need to desire the Word of God and you need to get your focus on the advancement of the Gospel. So, i got a lot to read today. I'll probably read a lot more than I actually expound on it, but that's okay. You have to see the narratives together. So we're going to span a long ways today. Just by way of introduction, again, remembering all I have said. By the way, what have we seen with Paul? Well, Paul is told by his friends that loved him, don't go up to Jerusalem. You know, that pulls on you, don't it? Don't do that, Paul. Even though the Lord had told him, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul knew it. There is a geographical tracking by the Spirit of God upon Paul's life. Isn't that interesting? That... He's to go from point A to point B to point C to point D. And it's geographical in its nature. And the Spirit led him that way. But he also knows that he not only will go to Jerusalem, but he will also make it to Rome. Why? Because Acts, in Acts 9, when he is called and saved, Ananias is told by the Lord, you go tell Paul exactly what he's going to do. And that is that he himself, after he gained his sight... The Bible says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, and he will go before Gentiles and kings and rulers. Now, has he been before those rulers as of yet? No, but he's about to. And if you're going to go to the Gentile rulers of the world, then you've got to leave Jerusalem. Do you see how much confidence this guy had in the sovereign will of God? That he knew that he was invincible until he finished his course. So it is. Notice what happens. He has friends that encourage him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then he's, he's actually uh, kind of hit with his own brethren that say, You know what, Paul? Maybe you're not sharing the gospel. Uh, well, you're sharing the gospel correctly, but maybe you're not uh, thinking about our Jewish customs enough. And so he's, he's getting it on every side. But finally, the enemies are going to come after Paul. The real enemies of the cross, the real enemies that want to kill him. Listen to verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, oh, here's the big one. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, 
the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, strong language by Luke, and the people ran together, mob violence. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So here is Paul, finally in the temple. We may say the day someone was arrested in church. Because that's what's happening. He's in the temple. And Paul is pursuing his course in the advancement of the gospel. And Luke lets us know those seven days are up. What does that mean? Remember the vow that Paul was willing to take? And why did he take the vow? To become all things to all men. By all means he may win some. And he takes this vow. And that is over. And he tells us that Jews from the province of Asia... Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not the continent of Asia. This is what we would know today as modern-day Western Turkey. This was a Roman province. And in all likelihood, these were Hellenistic Jews. Y'all know what that means? That those were Jews brought up in Greek culture. And they've come to track Paul down. We believe that these, are from, these people are from Ephesus. And the main reason is they're going to say, we've seen Trophimus before. The Ephesian. So we believe that these people had tracked Paul all the way from Ephesus. And when they see Paul in the temple, they get agitated, stirred up. And Luke is very detailed. There's confusion going on. How many people came down from Ephesus? Well, we don't know. But a little later in the Acts, you're going to find out that there are over 4,000 people that said, we're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of Paul. We're going to kill this guy. We're going to, we're going to do whatever it takes so they create this stir. There's bedlam in the temple. And in 28 and 29, the charges are given. The rabble rousers say that Paul is speaking against the people. Kind of a Trinitarian thing, right? People, Moses, and the law, or the law and Moses, and the holy place. In other words, Paul is being anti-Semitic. He is being anti-Moses. And he's being anti-temple. Folks, a Jew, a Jew of that day couldn't take that. And so they list all three of these charges against him. For them, this, this is blasphemy. This was the exact charges brought against a, the first Christian martyr who was Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Same charges brought against him. Now watch this. The charge of all charges was bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. There were two inscriptions. Uh, two inscriptions have been found in archaeological digs that were posted above the entrance of the inner courts of the temple that were warnings to Gentiles that if you pass through this entrance into the uh, inner sanctuary, it would bring death upon you. So in other words, there were signs for all of you in here. No Jews, right? There were no trespassing signs in the temple. And for all Gentiles, you could not go past that particular designation. So they recognized Trophimus from Ephesus which makes you believe that these guys probably were from Ephesus, and they're furious at the accusations. They all rush in. There's organized chaos against Paul. It is strange the things that people find unity in, right? Isn't it, also, isn't it weird? Even in church life, people began to get unified on error and just mob violence sometimes. I heard story after story at the convention from brothers in the Lord who, who either lost their church or were dealing with difficulties. Just story after story and things that people got unified in that were absolutely wrong. 
but it just creates a mob violence. And here's what they do. They drag Paul out and they shut the gates of the temple. You know what that means? We have finally rid ourselves of this contaminant that was in the sanctuary. And it was Paul in church. And they drag him out. It's violent in nature. Could you imagine being beaten by a mob? Now, we, we consider ourselves pretty tough guys in Missouri, don't we? But can you imagine? I don't know how many people were doing this. But it was mob violence. And their intent was to kill Paul. Can you imagine how many blows that he took at this particular time? Verses 31 to 32 make it clear that their intent was to kill him. But in the wisdom and plan of God, a most amazing thing happens. Uh, Paul is saved by the Romans. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you, if you read the Bible carefully, you're observant, and you ask the right questions. What does this mean? Why does it say this? You should have already thought in your mind, here are the Romans coming to save Paul. And the Jews are about to kill him. This is weird. It would kind of be like you being on trial in the U.S. and the Soviet soldiers come in and save your life. Right? It'd be very similar to something like that. The Romans had a military outpost that was adjacent to the temple. They dare not get too close. But just up on the bluff near the temple, they had a, a barracks where the, you know, Rome was over Jerusalem. Y'all get this, right? And so they, they don't want to contaminate the temple because of the religious beliefs of the Jews. But they're positioned squarely so they can see what is going on. And so, perhaps the ruckus caused uh, down in the streets in the temple courtyard area got their attention. Perhaps there was a runner who went up and told them. But the fact is, the crowd is attempting to beat Paul to death. And the Romans come and they stop it. What do we call this? The pox? Y'all didn't even go to school. Come on. The pox Romana. What's that called? Oh, come on, folks. I'm going to take my glasses off so I can see you. It's called the Peace of Rome. When the Roman soldiers showed up, you stopped whatever you were doing if it was Rome because you were fear-struck. You knew full, full well who was in charge. So the Romans, uh, which is interesting, they're the, really, they're the real professional killers. And it's, it is possible that these Jews stopped immediately not only because of the Roman soldiers, but because, hey, maybe they'll take up where we left off. And they'll just get rid of Paul. But Luke paints this picture that the soldiers come in, they're trying to... Find out what's going on. And quickly in verse 34, there's confusion. The officer could not make heads and tails about what is actually going on. And so the crowd is in such a frenzy. And they basically shield Paul. They're carrying him out and they're forming a human shield to get Paul out of the temple area and into the barracks. They form this shield. You can imagine the scene. Now listen to verses 37 through 40. As Paul was brought up... As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Sicily, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush... He addressed him in the Hebrew tongue, saying, So, maybe our sermon point today is this. It is good to know a little bit of Greek. Do y'all see the sovereignty of God at work? In all the details of life? And so it is. 
Paul is fresh off a situation where he is at the mercy of a mob. I don't think the Romans were gentle with him either. I think they probably took him in thinking he's an insurrectionist and they, they hurry him into the barracks. Yet here is Paul. Does this strike you? He's calm. He's composed. He's courteous. Well, excuse me. May I ask you a question? And what does he ask the question in? Not the Hebrew tongue, but in the Greek tongue so that Roman soldiers would understand. And when the soldier hears this, he asks the obvious question. Do you speak Greek? Right? This is not as strange as it sounds. Because I promise you, if I went up to Elsie Shuford and I began to speak in fluent Spanish right now, she would give me that look. You know Spanish? That's what she would say. Right? And that's exactly what's going on here. They've been hearing all the Hebrews back and forth. Probably language they did not understand. Some spoke Aramaic. Some spoke real Palestinian Hebrew. And then you got Paul being led to the barracks and asking this particular question. The arresting officer thought, well, aren't you the Egyptian terrorist? Again, all this commotion in Hebrew and Aramaic. And this guy's about to be beaten to death. And he says, hey, can I ask you a question? Do you know Greek? And he would say something, the officer would say something like, dude, I thought you were from Al-Qaeda. Right? It's interesting that Josephus mentions the rebellion, the terrorists that actually led the rebellion. That the officer is referring to. The Bible is never wrong. That's extra biblical stuff. And Josephus knew full well this took place. There was an insurrectionist. They knew him by name. And the officer probably thought, hey, the guy came back in town that caused this insurrection. And they just got a hold to him, and they're beating the fire out of him. Paul says, no way, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Jew. And by the way, I'm no hillbilly Jew either. And that's why, I want to preach that again, but that's why he's giving you the specifics. Why? Because he's an educated, highly educated Jew. More so than any Pharisee he could ever meet. That's how educated Paul was. Sophisticated, respectable. Note Paul's question. Let me talk to them and give a defense. Now, folks, how many of you would be that calm and composed after this mob has just beaten the fire out of you? And then you want to speak to them. Folks, how important is the gospel to you? Are you committed to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you are, you'll be calm, composed, and on point even when you're beaten to death. Only Jesus can do that through you. Now, think about this for a moment. What he wants to do is give a defense Through everything he's going through, he wants to make the gospel prominent. Some of you teenagers have no direction in life. You don't know what you're going to do. You've got thousands of things on your mind. I've got news for you. If you're not committed to the gospel, it's not going to go well. It may go well with the world. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You want a kick in life? You want the next high? Hook up to Jesus. Right? Hook up to him and have the same passion that Paul had. So Paul stands before the people. And again, it's not always, it's it's a great thing to know a little Greek, but it's also a blessing to know Hebrew. Anybody ready to go to seminary? I'm kind of Midwestern's up the road here, right? But no, what gets their attention? I mean, Paul steps out there. He ought to be, in our our estimation, we'd be, hey, I've had enough since, let me check out and go home. Here's Paul giving a defense before the people. He gets their attention in the Hebrew. Notice, brothers and fathers. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, 
I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought about, brought up in this city. Interesting. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness to. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed to Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here is Paul uh, getting their attention with the Hebrew tongue. It's highly possible that not everybody in that group understood Paul. It's highly possible that some knew Aramaic. Most were probably knowing Greek language. But Paul, I think, is primarily addressing the Jerusalem Jews. And he begins to speak in what they would call the only heavenly language. And that is Hebrew. Their ears perk up. And he addresses them beginning with brethren and fathers. In other words, he's saying, I'm one of you. I'm a countryman, just like you are. I'm exactly like you. And it would have resonated with them. And he begins to talk about his birth and his nationality and his dialect and his credentials and his bloodline. I've got Abraham's blood pumping through my veins just like you do. Scholars speculate that probably at the age of five or eight, five to eight, Paul would have been taken out of Tarsus and moved to Jerusalem. And he would have spent 15 years in education under Gamaliel, who is respected in every corner of all Jewish history in all biblical, uh, extra-biblical literature as one guy who had more influence on the Jewish people than perhaps anyone in the first century. And he said, Paul's saying this, folks, I learned what you know. I was raised in strict observance of the law of the fathers. I know what you believe. I even, uh, notice, I'm as zealous for what I learned as you are for what you're trying to do today. That same zeal I feel. And then he begins to talk about what he had done that they did not do, and that was this. I even persecuted the way. Now again, uh, in, Acts, in uh, Acts 11 is the first time they were called Christians in Antioch. And remember, that wasn't a term of endearment. They were actually calling them Christians because they seemed to have a vocation that had something to do with Jesus. And I hope that's why you're called a Christian. Are you worthy of the name Christian? Well, if you are, it's because you have something to do with Jesus. Right? And that's why they named them that. But here is Paul, and he addresses it as the way. And all the terminology Luke is using about Paul here, when Paul makes this statement about what he does, there's cruelty there, folks. Can y'all not see that? There's cruelty in what Paul did to Christians. I went and I arrested men and women. You know what that means? Paul ripped women away from their children. He hated Christianity so much that he... He persecuted men and women. He persecuted the way. He murdered Christians. The high priest can testify of this, Paul would say. They're witnesses. They know they sent me out. Your very own high priest right now is the very one who sent me with the letters to go up to Damascus to bring all Christians back and to persecute them. Now, this is just not a matter of me being... uh, Paul's not saying... Paul is saying to them, this is more of a matter of me being just one of you, the, the ultimate issue, I surpassed you in traditions and zeal and religion. So much so that I persecuted believers, Christians, and killed them. But what caused Paul to change? What caused the change in his life? I'm glad you asked, 
right? Verse 6, And as I was on my way, and I drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Folks, you do know that that's Old Testament fulfillment. Light at noontime. And here's the deal. Whatever this light was, which was the glory of Jesus, we know that, it was brighter than the sun. Isn't that awesome? It was brighter than the sun. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting now. Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see... Because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. What is this called? It's called something that you ought to have if you're saved. It's called his personal testimony. And Paul is giving before the people his testimony. Think about, track with me, Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, Benjamite, whole nine yards. I had all this pedigree, all these credentials, zealous just like you are. But I met Jesus, and everything changed. Right? That's what happens when you meet Christ. And his testimony is one of the most powerful statements of the reality of the living Christ that we could ever imagine. For someone to go from a killer of Christians to an absolute uh, hero of our faith is something that can only happen through Jesus Christ. And apart from a resurrected Christ... The conversion of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who's chronicled in all of history, not, not just Bible. Everybody in history knows that this was a phenomenal change. And apart from a resurrected Lord, this makes no sense. But I've got news for you. Uh, he is alive. And he is able to save. What a change. It's profound. Folks, think about this. This is not someone who was a Hindu and turned around and picked up Buddhism. This is not the story of someone who exchanged one philosophy for another. We can even be guilty of that in Baptist life without really being regenerated. It's very easy for us just to say, well, I'm going to put Jesus on the shelf just in case all the other gods are false. Maybe I'll make it to heaven. Folks, I want to tell you something. It's Jesus only. Right? You can be very guilty of making a profession without having a possession. And so here's the deal. This is not flipping from one religion to another. This is absolute, 100% transformation inside and out of a person. This is not a changing of a political structure from being a Democrat to a Republican. That makes me want to gag anyway. Any of that. All that stuff does. And when it comes into the Southern Baptist Convention, I want to gag more. But that's what we're facing all over our world today. It's not a focus on the gospel and Christ changing lives all of a sudden. I better be quiet. I'm going too far. Here we go. Well, he's not making a political change. This man was bent on wreaking havoc against all Christians. He hated them. And the immediate change is resolute when he meets Jesus Christ. Immediately. Is there even a fitting analogy for Paul's conversion? Is there one you can even think about that even compares to Paul? Do y'all remember a few years ago? I don't know how many, I forget time. But you remember the Osama bin Laden days? Let's say we know that he was the most wanted man of his day. He hated the West. He hated Christianity. And the guy hated us so bad that he was willing to live a miserable existence because he hated Christians in the West so bad. But what if all of it would have ended from El 
Tejera with bin Laden saying this on national TV. I used to hate Christianity, but I've now encountered the living Christ. Now I must say that I'm ashamed of what I've done in the past, much like Paul did. And today I'm moving in a total different direction and I want to win people to Jesus. Now after you picked your mouth off the floor, (laughs) folks, that's kind of close to what you'd have seen here. Paul was a terrorist, folks. You get that through your head. He was. And what an amazing transformation. By the way, we ought to pray to our Heavenly Father that He would save all the Bin Ladens of our day. We ought to pray because ultimately He can do it, folks. If He can save Paul... Y'all remember what we read in 1 Timothy? My salvation was an example of the patience of God. God could have killed him. He had every right to kill Paul. All he had to do was just speak the word and he was dead. But yet Jesus said, you know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to pick you up and you're going to be mine. By the way, that's the way you were saved. Whether you understand it or not, that's the way you were saved. No one is ever saved by their own initiative. You're saved by the initiative of Christ. Just like what happened on the road to Damascus. Is someone saved from the art of persuasion? Sometimes we think, you know, Pastor, I, I just don't have the lingo down. I, I just, I can't, I can't talk to people. I'm telling you folks, no one has ever been saved by the art of persuasion. You're saved by Jesus, the living Christ. So go ahead and open your mouth. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit has been there long before you got there. Right? No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. You can have confidence that God is actually not surprised when someone gets saved. He might actually have something to do with people getting saved. Y'all listening? Amen. He's in control, folks. Can't you see that? And Paul's life is going in a total different direction. Mm, Amazing. Jesus reigns, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know that Muslims are getting saved every day across our world? Buddhists are getting saved all across our world. Even communists are getting saved across our world. The eternal God says, you know what? I'm going to make you mine. And that's what he did with Paul. Sovereign grace and the power of the gospel through the resurrected Christ, arrested Paul on the road to Damascus, changed his life. In 12 through 16, we see Paul's calling and his baptism. And one, Ananias, devout man, why is Paul saying these things? People, places are important in Christianity. Y'all know that? We've got the only verifiable religion in the world. Challenge our places, challenge our people, challenge our events, and you're going to lose every time. Our religion is one of verifiable facts. And Paul is wanting them to know, Ananias was as devout as any of you guys about ready to kill me. He's letting them know they knew this. Well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Notice, do you, did y'all remember reading Acts when he's going to confront Paul? He's like, are you kidding me? You think I, Ananias, I'm going to go to Paul who kills Christians? Are you nuts? But yet he calls him brother here. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, he received my, I received my sight. And he said to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Uh, do y'all think God is sovereign? You really do. What does that text say? God. Right? 
came to me and standing before me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, and he said to them, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. God didn't have to do that, folks. He didn't have to do that. But he appointed Paul so that Paul would know his will. And here's the deal, to see the righteous one. Do you think it's an appointment when you meet the righteous one? By the way, this is drenched in Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. Why is Paul doing this? He's getting into the minds of the Hebrews. Your scriptures, Isaiah 53 says that he will be the righteous one. It doesn't say that, but I'm supplying it for you. Why? Because he's the righteous one. Isaiah said it. The God of our fathers, that's going back to the Old Testament. Don't ever let anybody unhitch you from the Old Testament. Don't believe that bogus stuff. You do understand that Old Testament tells a story and Jesus is on every page. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Y'all get that? And that's what Paul is doing. He's preaching and he's telling them, Hey, the Old Testament, uh, he's the righteous one. By the way, you can't be saved apart from the righteous one. You're not righteous. He is. And you can only be saved by him. And for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Mm. The only way to be righteous is through the righteous one. What happened to me, Paul would say, is what I've been waiting for for centuries. He's the hope of Israel. It's just like Paul was saying to them right before you, don't miss the very hope of Israel. Do not miss your Messiah. He is the righteous one. So Paul, calling on the name of the Lord... That's the cry of salvation, folks. I get nervous when I say, hey, all you got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. Now, what about that cry of desperation for Jesus to save your soul? There's a major difference than just thinking about a pumping instrument inside of your chest that we tell children. All you got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. Be careful. Be real careful. Salvation is a cry of desperation for the Lord Jesus Christ to save your soul. It's a cry of desperation. And that's why the text says, call out to the Lord. Rescue, cleansing, new life. And what is baptism? It's an expression of that very faith that you've had in Christ. And what's actually taking place in your life. I know this is a lot of material, but now listen to 17 through 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, standing there, approved and watched over his garments while they killed him. In other words, Paul is saying, I gave my hearty vote for Stephen to be killed. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What does this all mean? Paul was giving a defense that day, right? In Jerusalem, alive that day. But do you know that Paul wanted to give that defense the moment he was saved? And so he goes back to Jerusalem. Not only does he go back to Jerusalem, but he goes back in the customs of Jews and begins to pray in the temple. And they're saying to him, you're anti-Semitic. No, get this, brother. The difference is Jesus. The difference is the Lord that he's made in my life. And so Paul says, I had a desire to go ahead and start telling these guys about Jesus. Why? Because they knew what I was. It's not going to be hard for them to understand that I was one way and I got saved and now I'm another. But what does the Lord say? You better get out of Jerusalem. Because if you start preaching this gospel, they're going to kill you. But Jesus had another plan, did he not? 
He had a plan for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth so that me and you could hear it. Y'all getting this? Were it not for Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, I know God is sovereign. He would have raised up someone else. But God also ordains the means. Right? And here he has Paul teaching the gospel. And the Messiah has come. And he wanted to say this to them. This is the only way you can get forgiveness of sins is through the Messiah. So Paul presents himself as true. As a pious, faithful Jew who had a change of life brought about by the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because he met the resurrected King. The hope of Israel. Does it strike you again that all of this is historical? Paul says, I was there. I was here. You know it. You know what happened to me. You know there's, there's historical veracity, folks, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no other religion on the planet can actually say, test me historically. Our faith is one of people, places, and events that are absolutely verified. So in 21, Paul begins to make a statement that's going to end his defense. Do you notice that they didn't get worked up about Jesus coming out of the grave? What got their attention and what made them mad? Gentiles in the temple, right? Folks, do we need to pray at times about race relations? You better believe we do. But that's even among white people. We're as racist as we can be. We discriminate all the time. And we need to pray that we'll look through the lenses of the early apostles and the church. And more importantly, Christ. Everybody is a recipient of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody, anybody can be saved. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. You know, God forbid. Really the problem, folks, is sinful depravity. Isn't it? It is. But here, the Gentiles, mm, do you think they hated them? I'm telling you, there's been no race relations that have ever compared to the gravity of how much Jews hated Gentiles. Never. Ever. Hated them so bad. And we know how that was reciprocated, even in the Holocaust. Just think about that for a moment. The hatred there. But the deal is, even Christ, when He is in the book of Luke, and He, he stands, and you remember that? He takes the scroll and he begins to read Isaiah. And He talks about this day as being fulfilled. And everybody was listening. Until He said... The Father has sent me as a light unto the Gentiles. And what happens then? They try to push him off a cliff. Right? They couldn't stand the thoughts of the gospel or God being for anyone other than the Jews. But they were good until he gives the statement. The statement of Gentiles. Paul spoke the truth as it was. Did he not? He spoke it clearly. He spoke the truth. And then guess what happens again? Let's end the story. Let's end the narrative. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then their voices raised against him. Away with such a fellow from earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out from the whips, for the whips, Paul said, Hey, one more question. Right? Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? It's good to know Greek. It's good to know Hebrew. 
And it's really, really good to be a Roman citizen, right? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, What are you about to do? For this is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I was born that way. Hmm. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for they realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had been bound by them. Isn't this amazing? Totally calm. I mean, just imagine. They're strapping him down in the barracks, getting ready to flog him. What? Think about this now. 18-inch pieces of leather tied to an end of whatever holds it. Probably 12, most called it a cat of nine tails. Let's say they're nine liters, about 18 inches long. And in the end of those liters, bound up in the leather, was gla- broken glass and metal. That's exactly what Jesus was hit with multiple times. And what was the gold? To go across your back and rip as much flesh off your back as possible. And this is what was about to happen to Paul. And he says, hey, by the way, one more question. Isn't that awesome? I got one more question for you. Is it right to flog a Roman, especially when he hasn't been condemned? You know, folks, that they treated every Roman citizen with respect. And unless you were charged guilty in court, there was no possible way that you would would have ever been flogged. Note that statement. Hey, I bought my Roman citizenship for a lot of money. Well, we know that, that those in the day would carry around a token in their pocket. And they would pull out that token to show Roman citizenry. I don't know how Paul would have gotten it out, or if he pulled it out. But more than likely, nine times out of ten, that's how they had to show their citizenship. So Paul would have pulled that token out and had that citizenship. And that's why the Roman soldier would have responded by saying, Hey, I spent a lot of money to get mine. And Paul turns around and says, But mine came by birth. Again, highlighting who Paul is. Folks, Paul didn't mind being beaten and suffering for the gospel, did he? But I'm just going to tell you like it is. If you can go without getting a beating, you ought to. So I call that prudence and wisdom that God gave him to get out of that situation. So, again, from here on out, this book of Acts is going to be defined as the prisoner's progress. Paul will demand to be heard through the rest of the book of Acts. Why? Because he's a Roman citizen. Two points of application, we're done. Our message is not about defending ourselves, it is about the gospel. Can anybody say amen to that? Paul's not defending himself. Everything about what Paul is doing is so that he can give that defense, so he can give the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not about how to get off the hook. His message was about bringing the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He wasn't trying to get out of trouble. His mission was to make the universal gospel of Jesus Christ universal in application. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be not thinking so much about ourselves, but we need to think about the gospel and about Christ. Number two, God's methods in spreading the gospel are not usually ours. He uses means that we would call weird, maybe even bad. Yet alone, we might even call them dangerous. And God uses those means. He uses things that we would constitute as suffering and injustice. He uses things that we think are unusable. He uses a Roman tribunal. He uses Roman soldiers. He uses an angry Jewish mob. He uses Greek language. He uses a near riot. 
He uses the Hebrew tongue. He uses Roman citizenship. All for the advancement of the gospel. Anybody getting this? This is how our God works. This is not just an action-packed story. This is God's story. This is God doing this. Paul saw his change and his suffering as part of his mission. He saw his change as propagation for proclamation of the gospel. And so should we. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You did good. And I'm going to take these off before I break my neck. All right? But here's the deal. We're going to hit these narratives. They're going to be longer. I think I only have four or five sermons left in Acts. And some of you are thinking, 28 chapters? Wow. But that's true. I only have four or five left. It's going to be sweeping narratives. But you don't want to miss it. They're action-packed. We can learn so much about the advancement of the gospel. Now draw a circle around yourself today. You, in light of the Scriptures, and what you've heard today, how do you feel about the advancement of the gospel of Christ in your life? Are you living for that? The first question I should ask is, do you know Christ? Maybe there's a reason why it's not paramount and of first importance to you. Because maybe you've never met the living Christ. I promise you, if you meet the resurrected Lord, you'll never be the same. Yeah, can we get into a spiritual funk? Yes, we can. But God never intends for you to be there and stay there. Yeah, there's valleys. There's difficulties. Yes, there's unconfessed sin. Uh, there, there are uh, strongholds that can keep you from being all that God would have you to be. I ask you to deal with the Lord today on those issues. If you don't know Christ, oh, folks, listen to the words. Call on the name of the Lord. It's a rescue mission, right? Jesus did it. Call on the one who can save. He's the only one that can save. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, that's probably where the way came from. While they were using it, by the way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Christians, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow. Amen? Father, help us during this time of invitation not to just to zip our Bibles up, and not to go off to Brahms or wherever we're going. God, Father's Lord, let us deal with you. God, we've heard the Word. We've heard your Word. And now we should ask ourselves, Lord, God, what are you teaching us? Help us, Lord. We're, we're frail. We're fickle. We struggle. We're humanity. God, help us. Help us to be motivated more by serving you and advancing the gospel than we are about anything else in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.